Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. In 1957, Sputnik 1 was the first artificial satellite launched into low Earth orbit. And as a species, we've been launching these social, economic, and scientifically important objects ever since. In this episode, my guests and I plan to cover the science behind satellite launches, their orbits, time correction, and the data that they collect. But before we get into the details of satellites, we get a little personal and talk about my guest's time as an Earth observation data engineer and discuss her involvement with both InnoFlare and UMETSAT. Speaking of my guest, please meet Noemi Marsico. Noemi is an Earth observation data engineer working for InnoFlare as a contractor for UMETSAT. She holds a bachelor's in environmental science and a master's in hydrology with a focus on remote sensing. Her current job involves the management of data access services and the support of UMETSAT users through training. In her free time, Noemi is a passionate science communicator and has been involved in numerous works with universities and organizations such as Greenpeace. If you have Instagram, I highly recommend that you give her a follow at nowoman.noscience. So, now that you've been introduced to my guest star in the topic of this podcast, we are going to head into the first segment where we plan to talk about Noemi's involvement in remote sensing with InnoFlare and UMETSAT. Cheers. Noemi, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hello, Sam. Hi, I'm doing good. How are you? How are you doing? Very well. My apartment's extremely bare now because I'm getting ready to move again, which is exciting. It's just, of course, a little stressful. That's really cool. Don't worry. I, I have actually put my computer on the other side of the room because usually I'm over there, but because that side is prettier. So you see a bit of like satellites. I have little model here. I don't know if you know this. It's a really uh, cute model. So I, that's why I have the good background. But if I was turned on the other right, on the other way, it wouldn't be that cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's really fitting. Love the backdrop. It's very nice. Way better than my white walls. Just only white walls. <laughs> But um, this first segment, we're going to talk about your journey in terms of what you do with satellites and also InnoFlare and UMETSAT, correct? Yes, of course. I am an Earth Observation Data Engineer. I have recently started my new position um, and I'm an employee of InnoFlare, which is a software company, and we are contractors for UMETSAT. This means that UMETSAT is getting us as a team from InnoFlare and we are doing some work for UMETSAT. It's really common for people not to know what UMETSAT is, even though it's one of the biggest and most important space organizations of Europe. So UMETSAT actually stands for the European Organization for Meteorological Exploitation of Satellites. So U for Europe, uh, MET for Meteorological, and SAT for Satellites. Okay. Um, I'm actually working as employee of InnoFlare, but working for projects with UMETSAT. So what we do is using data, the data that we have that we collect from the satellites, from UMETSAT satellites, we put them in platforms and then we teach the users how to download the data, to take them and how they can work with them. So it's a really interesting topic because you end up working with a, a lot of different sectors of science because in the end, satellites data can be used literally for anything. And that's, and that's a really cool part of the job that I do. 
But again, I just started two months ago in January. So I'm really fresh. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I don't think most people know what Umitsat is, actually. Uh, I honestly <laughs> am not that familiar. I'm more familiar with literally only the ESA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, but also like the classic NASA, you know, like everybody knows NASA, but <laughs> maybe like ESA is not as considered or UMATSAT or I don't know, the Swedish Space Organization, you know, things like that. But it, there is a really good work and a lot of employees and a lot of people doing incredible jobs. And it's a really great environment to grow your, your idea, your experience. It's a great place. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you get involved with all of this? Curious. Yeah, so basically why I started as a normal bachelor, 19 years old bachelor student. I moved from Italy to London and I actually had a lot of fun those years. I actually didn't even know English when I moved there. So it was quite challenging for me at the beginning. So I started environmental sciences there and then I finished it and I started a master in hydrology. Throughout the master, I started as well kind of focusing on remote sensing and satellites. That was because the year before I did an internship in the Italian Space Agency and I started to, you know, understanding a bit how satellites work and how you can use satellites and new technologies uh, on a more environmental perspective, which is, uh, I think it's a great way we have to study the planet. My hydrology master thesis was based on analyzing suspended sediments in the Baltic Sea. So I was using remote sensing data from OLCHI, that is a sensor from Sentinel-3. I was using this data to calculate how the concentration of sediments brought from a river to the sea. And it was really interesting because I did the coolest part, that is the validation, I think is the coolest part, because validation means when you validate that your data, your satellite data are actually reflective uh, for your samples. So what you do is actually going on the sea, collecting samples and then compare your values from the sample with what you got from the, the satellite. I went for two days on a research cruise and it was amazing. And I got to, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Uh, I also made an Instagram reel. I made my supervisors back then dance on the, on the boat and it was a lot of fun. And so, yeah, that's how I, I, I started to learn and know a bit more about remote sensing. And that's how I ended up then in Numetsat after any year, a year from my graduation. Oh, wow, that's really cool. So you were on the aspect of taking the data and comparing yes. it to what you get into the field, but you're not doing that same role now. It's more just based on just the satellite data itself? Yes, exactly. So back then it was more of a more scientific actual mm -hmm. sense of how to use remote sensing data right now is a bit more engineering that's why my title is my title is data engineer because um we don't do that part of analyzing the data we take the data we put them in certain platforms and we make sure that users have for example jupyter notebooks that they can use to analyze their data and we create trainings so I am currently creating the training for the data access services. So all the data accesses that HumanSat has for people to get and get into the data, download their data. So I give the training for these people to learn about how to download our data and utilize them. The actual using the data, that's more of a scientific part. And it's also used mm -hmm. by HumanSat 
UNSAT itself does have their training part, uh, and I'm also part of that, but I am not the main one who creates the training in this more scientific sense, you know, how, how you can use marine training. I do enter in, um, in trainings that are already organized, for example, by marine experts or atmosphere experts, and I collaborate with them. There's a lot of work because it's a lot of data and you have to manage them. And, and that's a really interesting part. How many satellites are under UMITSAT? There are five missions, I think. I hope not people from UMITSAT will not kill me after this podcast if I may say something wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think there are five, five missions and more satellites within each mission. And actually, the thing that I showed you before that I already mm -hmm. showed you now, this is a Meteosat. It's uh, one of their missions and it's a third generation. Uh, it's a new satellite and I actually went to their launch. Oh. Uh, the launch itself was in New Guinea, so I didn't go to the launch lounge, but I did go <laughs> to the launch party in Netherlands. So oh. we were attending the launch and there were all the most important people of ESA and UMETSAT, because of course this is a collaboration with UMETSAT and ESA. It was really interesting, I have to say. It was one of the best experiences I've ever had. So it's, it's quite a lot of satellites, uh, not too many if you consider overall how many satellites there are around the planet, but yeah. they're really good satellites and they provide a lot of great data. Oh yeah, so my last question, because I'm, I'm just yeah. curious, the data that, that you collect from these satellites and you put onto these platforms, what type of access is it? Is it like private access or is this like publicly accessible? Or is it like in between, like you have contractors and stuff that you want to keep things private? Yeah, so generally speaking, on a more broad sense, they are public, the majority of them. So if you, Sam, want to type on internet UMET view, for example, that's a, an interface where you can get the data and it's a really simple interface. You can just look at the data, put layers on your map and download the data. And same for other platforms like the data store, for example, it's a really interesting way of downloading data, but not every data is for everybody, but yeah. the majority of the data are probably, yeah, free. Again, I hope no UMETSAT person will come contact me. So that's not what I would do. Uh, please, I apologize. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm also curious. I'm sorry. I'm doing no. this. This is fun. No. So whenever you capture the data, whenever you get the data from the, from the satellite, do you do anything with it, like cancel white noise, like that you are accustomed to maybe interpreting in most of your data sets, or is it all just like completely raw? Um, so you can have access to different data. There are people uh, at UMETSAT and there are other type of scientists that do work with native formats, so they're real raw formats, but usually you kind of process them. So maybe you have okay. level one or level two or level three data, so they're space and time binned, so you do need to process them quite a bit before you're actually able to use it. For example, for me that I was a master's student, I would not going to be able to process probably something um, that was native. I got as a level two data, but it really depends. There are a lot of types and you can get either the raw data or the already processed data. Um, there are scientists that actually do that as their job. So. Pretty cool. I feel like this is a good transition point because we had a couple other things that we wanted to talk about before we ended this segment. So how did we start getting satellites and, you know, 
looking at the earth, studying the earth? How in, I guess a little bit of why too, maybe sprinkled yeah. in there. Yes, of course. Okay, so imagine that the very first time somebody talked about remote sensing, it was a professor. Her name was Eleanor, I think, Prout. Elise Prout, something like that. Sorry, I don't remember exactly the name, uh, but certainly the surname was Prout. Um, and she actually was a geographer, and she started understanding that you can actually use cameras, for example, to retrieve information about something without being in direct contact with it. So this was the main part. So how can we take information about something without being in contact? And how great is that when something is so big like the Earth uh, that we cannot just go and go around and take samples about each centimeter of the Pacific Ocean that we have, you know? So that's how it started, the word. And then later, a few years later, in the 57th, actually it was 1957, that the Soviet Union sent the first Earth observation satellite and it was called Sputnik 1. And if you see the pictures, they're really nice. It, it was just literally just like a bowl with four little antennas and it just sent radio waves. And it was funny because it literally did like, I think, two turns around the earth and then it stopped working. <laughs> but it was a great, a great first step. So then NASA started with their satellites and Soviet Union kept on and then slowly, slowly got a much bigger impact. And, and I think it's great for environmental research because, again, usually when you go on site, it's really time consuming and it's really pricey. Just imagine that you're taking five examples of my thesis. You take five samples, maybe 10 in total of 10 stations, and you took three days. You spent a lot of fuel for the boat and you spent a lot of manpower for all the scientists on the boat. So remote sensing actually allows you to get more data in a really short amount of time. And even though sometimes it's not a real perfect data, but there is a lot that has been done and it's increasing, and it's improving. And there is so much that we are learning. For example, this one is as well, this new Meteosat. It's going to be able for the first time for Europe to take information about lightnings. So before Ooh. Europe, we didn't have any satellite that would take information about lightning. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be able to detect exactly where the lightning is going to strike because that's not yeah. going to happen. Not yet, but it's giving a lot of information and it can help a lot in many different businesses and many different industries can use remote sensing and it's it's really great. Yeah, absolutely. So I have like two things that I wanted to add to that. First, the, the lady's name is Evelyn Pruitt. Evelyn. Yeah. 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 I was like, Eleanor, Elise. You were, <laughs> I, I missed the E. <laughs> I remember. Close. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> the second thing is the Sputnik. So that launch, it, it's so funny because like satellites were kind of invented more or less for the political, the geopolitical reasons um, that we don't really want to like, you know, be yeah, happy yes. about, you know, or yeah. more ashamed about it. Cause like the Russian Sputnik one was created to be able to spy on like the United States activities and NASA had to counter with their own, <laughs> you know, kind of like spy yeah. equipment. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, a little lackluster. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it was the first earth observation. Like I, I rather was the first earth observation satellite, but Clearly, they wanted to observe something else beside the Earth. <laughs> you know, typically satellites have multi-purposes, so. Of course, yes. Just to note, the satellites I'm talking about, it's always Earth observation. There is, a lot, there is communication, military, 
commercial, I'm usually talking about mm-hmm. Earth observation, pure satellites. So oh, that's-, that's a great thing that I think we should add to this is that mm-hmm. satellites is more involved than you think. And really, that's- a satellite is anything that revolves around a body in space. So what we're talking about is artificial satellites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's really common because, you know, it's, a, I actually heard people saying, I don't know, but the moon is not a satellite because they are so used to hearing mm-hmm. satellite as the artificial satellite. And it's like, no, the moon is actually a satellite. <laughs> uh, we just stole the word and put it on our artificial one. <laughs> it's a really good point. Well done for, for raising it. Yeah. So the last thing that I think we should cover before we roll into our first commercial break is we've talked about these different agencies. Of course, we've mentioned UMITSAT, we've mentioned the ESA, we've mentioned NASA. Why do you think most people credit or point their eyes towards NASA over other agencies? I ask myself that question um, in the sense that NASA is obviously the richest agency and it's also one of the oldest. So probably we also have a little bit of the American influence. So people have this really strong American influence. So I think that's one of the most important reasons why NASA, it's uh, it's such a big part. And I think they also have really great communicators, not saying that that ESA doesn't because they have great communicators too, but there is kind of like this sort of admiration for NASA, um, Mm. which is not the same for many other agencies. And I think that's really sad because um, many, many of the missions are conducted in a collaboration. And there is so much that uh, all the other agencies, space agencies are doing, even like the Indian space agency is doing great. Um, Italian space agency is actually doing amazing. And there is an incredible amount of agencies that are doing great job. And it's sad seeing people acknowledging only NASA as the biggest space agency. Sometimes I say, okay, well, I'm going, for example, I'm going to the lounge organized by ESA and people are like, what is ESA? But if I would have said NASA, then everybody would have been like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Um, so yeah. I think I think this is something that certainly population society has to you know acknowledge a little bit more other agencies and other works that are done within the same business. Yeah, it's extremely important to realize that space work is mostly collaborative. I mean, there are a few exceptions, of course, yeah. but that's of course back to the geopolitical issues, not really the science issues. But yeah, I I would say like whenever I'm doing my science communication, especially with like talking about space and stuff like that, a lot of my information does come from the ESA. The ESA has a lot of amazing articles because, of course, they're just as credible as as NASA. The funny thing that I grabbed from that is that you said that NASA has the largest like budget or worth. And that's that's hilarious because it's not hilarious that it's wrong. It's just hilarious that like it's still not even that much. Like what NASA does with their budget is kind of insane. If you think about like the US budget overall versus the percentage that NASA gets, it's extremely small. Well, I've said my gripes on that yeah. many times in the past, but yeah. it's just, it's funny that you say that. And that's crazy because now that you think of like these other agencies that have a lot of great accomplishments are doing it off of even smaller budgets, which is yeah. pretty cool to know. 
No, exactly. It's uh, it's incredible. I didn't know that at all. Um, and it's uh, I, I didn't really read much about the economy of America, like just the basics. Uh, but I didn't see the percentage of fundings put in space agency. It is crazy what they do and and uh, all the things that are organized and all the things that are planned. But again, it's everything is a collaboration, yeah. especially science generally. That's what I always talk about i feel that science is such a collaborative thing that we kind of go slower if we keep our information to ourselves if we would start actually collaborating between everybody we would reach to a much better understanding of everything of every part of science so um collaborations are always the best thing that you can do oh absolutely i totally agree and before we jump into the break i just want to say this pretty quickly that i, I had to google it uh, in the 2020 budget for NASA was $22.6 billion. This year is $25.4 billion. Now, before you scream, before you scream, <laughs> the U.S. spends, I think, between $700 and $800 billion on their military budget. <laughs> so that's why I was saying that the percentage difference. Wow. I leave you with that. We're going to go into break, and when we come back, yeah, yeah, oh, it's crazy. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about the science of satellites, so stick around. Are you an athlete who is constantly on the grind? Maybe you're a student who's cramming for an 8 a.m. exam the next day, or maybe you're someone who's crushing a hike and you have three peaks to go. Well, you've come to the right ad. Sigma Snacks are a healthy alternative to pre-workout and energy drinks. These snacks deliver easily digestible sugars and carbs necessary to crush an early morning workout, late night study sesh, or any adventure in between. By combining caffeine and the amino acid L-theanine, these bars are backed by scientific research to provide clean energy, extra focus, and reduce the anxiety and crash that are associated with normal pre-workout and junk energy drinks. Not to mention, they taste great. Specifically, I have been taking them with me on my backpacking adventures. They're a great way to start the day without having any jitters or an upset stomach on the trail. Lastly, Sigma Snacks is a student-run, student-operated startup that would like to offer you 15% off your first purchase with the promo code STEAM. So head on over to EatSigmaSnacks.com and order your first Sigma Snack today to have the best and most reliable source of energy shipped right to your door. That's EatSigmaSnacks.com, promo code STEAM for energy that's out of this world. We're back. This is segment two, and we're talking about maybe the non-juicy portion of the episode. In my opinion, it's it's pretty juicy just because I'm talking about like physics and engineering, and Noemi's going to weigh in as well as we move through this. But I've prepared some notes, and I kind of narrowed it down to a few topics that I think are really, really interesting. How we get satellites into space, how we maintain that, and then how we kind of correct it over time. Obviously, yeah. when you think about launching a satellite into space, you think about rocketry, right? Because that's how we've been really doing it. There is another way that I think is is really cool. And, I can mention that later, but it's governed by propulsion or the rocket equation. If you're not familiar, I'll make this swift. So, you know, it doesn't bore the heck out of you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great part of, of satellites that I don't usually 
touch. And it's really interesting thinking about, you know, all the people that are actually working even before the actual taking the data and sending the satellite uh, over to space. So it's it's really interesting. Yeah, it's back to what you were saying before we went into break. It's, you know, it's all about that that collaboration. And um, it comes from all angles with this stuff. So whenever we think about rockets, we have to think about the payload and the fuel and specifically the gravitational field influence. So that boils down to weight. We have to think about differential weight because propulsion efficiency is driven by the gradient of the fuel that you're using over the trip because the fuel obviously dwindles, you're using it, and the gravitational field variation. So as you leave Earth's atmosphere, or as you're moving away in Earth's atmosphere, you lose that gravitational pull, which lessens the weight of the payload and the fuel, and you lose the fuel. So more weight is lost there as well. So rocket engineers and really, really intelligent people have to use calculus because of these, these differentials. And the rocket equation is involving like two extreme parameters, which is rocket velocity and exhaust velocity. And it's the balance of the two. So like how much rocket velocity am I going to need to balance the weight? And then how much will chemistry be able to provide me in exhaust velocity? So the exhaust velocity can be thought of as thrust or propulsion. And the biggest misconception that that really irritates me, and I'll, I'll say this in a second, is that the force of the propulsion doesn't come from the exhaust pushing off of the ground or off of the atmosphere, because it just wouldn't make sense. Because once you get into space, you're not pushing off of really anything. But where the force comes from is the exhaust pushing against the rocket itself. And you know, people who say that we've never been to space make that that claim, but they don't understand Newton's third law, which is, you know, every force has an equal and opposite reaction force. And that's how we get propulsion. That was a really good explanation in a really short amount of time, Sam. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> that's great. Um, additionally, I like this fun fact is that rockets that we have designed, like the Saturn V rocket or SpaceX's Starship, they only have an initial payload percentage. And the payload means like, say, the people, the science equipment, the things that are necessary for the mission, the objective, that initial payload is only two to maybe four and a half percent of the entire weight of the rocket. That's insane. So if you do like a really weird thought experiment, and I've, I've thought about this before, if the conditions of Earth were different, if we had more mass, a stronger gravitational field, uh, so gravitational uh, influence as we're trying to move through space-time, we would have to figure something else out because right now we only have so many applicable ways to create that exhaust velocity. We'd kind of be in a bit of a pickle. That is a crazy fan fact. <laughs> and how do you know so many things about rockets? It's a hobby. I, I chose structural engineering, but I, I love I love aerospace. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. So um, are you familiar with the types of satellite orbits? So like we, we've talked about how we get it up off of the Earth's surface, but like, do you know about any of the satellite orbits? 
I know about the orbits. Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you how much fuel I need is on a rocket to reach a certain orbit, but I do no, know no. <laughs> which orbits we have. And if I'm not mistaken, we have mainly three orbits. So it's the Leo, Mio, and Geo. Um, so the most interesting for me that it's crazy just thinking about it, the Geo that is 36,000 kilometers from the equator actually. So it's an incredible distance. And if you think that we are able to retrieve information from that distance with a satellite, it's unbelievable, honestly, it's just uh, incredible. And thinking about all the other, and the majority of satellites actually, they are in uh, Leo, I think. So it's uh, the closest, um, how, how much does it reach, five? It's between like zero, it, they, they say zero and like 500-ish miles. That's where the ISS is as well. Uh, it's yeah. in the orbit, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so, it's like 250 miles or something like that. It's crazy. And that satellite is also the biggest satellite we actually have. Uh, it's 108 meters long. Yeah. Um, it's really cool. I was lucky enough to visit when I went for the launch, the reconstruction of the ISS, we got to enter and see everything. And you imagine it bigger than what it actually is. Like once you're inside the room where they sleep, it's a really little box, you know, and it's crazy. It's just like going around and I'm a small woman and I entered there and I was like, oh my God, I'm getting claustrophobic. Um, <laughs> And it's, uh, it's really incredible. And then we also got to see, you know, the, the classic cupola that you get to cut the oh, earth. Yeah. It was really interesting. But yes, so it's actually important, the orbits also, when you download data, for example, in UMETSAT, they do have the ticket, the label, Geo and Leo, uh, depending on the, the type of data that you want to process. Um, mm. And it's really interesting how, how different they can be between each other. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have some really cool uh, information. I think that yeah. would go into the into into more depth about Leo, Mio, and Geo, because mm -hmm. um, you can actually split Geo into two different subcategories that I think are pretty cool to like talk about. But the Leo, like you said, is like zero to a few hundred miles up. The first person to like really document and think about this is Sir Isaac Newton. I don't know if you knew uh, that. No. Um, I I think it was in the late 1600s, he was thinking about, okay, if I have a projectile that I launch from the top of a mountain, I feel like if I shot it fast enough, it could hit me in the back of the head. Mm -hmm. And essentially what that means is like, if I shoot a projectile, it's falling towards earth. And if I want it to hit me in the back of the head, I have to match that speed at the rate that the curve of the earth pulls away from it mm -hmm. so that's it's like tangential velocity so if you match those it's constantly at the same distance from the earth as long as you maintain that speed that sideways motion so if you think about it that's kind of like if, if we look at leo leo is a certain distance away from the earth's surface and i think that speed is roughly around like five miles per second or it's like eighteen thousand miles per hour so if you think about it right if the gravity changes as you go further and further away from the earth that means you have less free fall effect so you don't have to move sideways relative to the free fall as fast as you have to closer to the earth so as you move from leo mio and geo you don't have to move as fast 
So it's ideal to be orbiting higher up. So one, that you don't experience as much air drag because the atmospheric density is differential based on gravity. And also, you don't have to put in as much effort. Oh, that also, is interesting. Yeah, that yeah, it's, it's cool. It's so, so crazy and it's super interesting. And, and actually, I was, I was thinking about that. For geosatellites, they usually move as fast as the Earth. So they end up taking just one side of the Earth. So there needs to be a combination between satellites to get all the planet because, of course, you're just like turning at the same velocity. So you end up seeing one side only. And it's super interesting that too. That's true. That's geostationary. It's matching the Earth's rotation. So the Earth's rotation is like, it's a little less than 24 hours. It's like 23 hours and 56 minutes. And I think that location, you set it in kilometers. To put it in imperial perspective, because we hate the metric system for some reason here, uh, that's like 22-ish thousand miles. And most of those are communication satellites. Actually, the first, I think, communication, and you know, somebody in the comments can prove me wrong on this, but I think the first communication satellite was Telstar, and that was in the 60s. But that was put up about 22,000-ish miles. It's, it's decommissioned now, of course, but, but that's geostationary, and we also have geosynchronous. So instead of being just aligned with Earth's rotation, meaning that it's parked up there in the sky, um, as you're looking at it as an observer, you're synchronizing it with the rotation. So like a two to one rotation would be, it rotates two times every time the earth rotates once. And that can be three to one, four to one, et cetera. That's geosynchronous. So there's two pretty interesting ways to do geo orbits. Okay, that's really interesting. Did you, did you learn about this or uh, you just read about it or you, it was part of your training? Oh, no, this isn't part of my training. It's just, it. I learned about this in uh, Dynamics, and then I've also just read it afterwards. But um, there's classes that are just devoted to, you know, like Kepler's Laws of Motions, and whenever you build in special and general relativity into things, it's pretty neat. But Mio, since we're jumping around, I wanted to talk about Mio really quick. Mio contains most of the GPS satellites. So again, like it's a little higher than LEO. You think low Earth orbit, middle Earth orbit, and then geo, geostationary, geosynchronous. That's like the highest orbits that you can have relative to the Earth's surface. Um, but yeah, you would think of it as, okay, I'm further away from the Earth. I'm moving a little bit slower. So those orbits have a longer duration than what you would get in LEO. One more thing, just to get perspective, because this is always interesting. A LEO orbit, if you're orbiting around like the equator and you're going about 18,000 miles per hour tangentially, for the people that want to correct me, tangentially, uh, I think that's the 90 minute orbital duration. So like you would see 18 different sunsets in a day. Uh, it's it's an incredible amount of times. <laughs> if you think about doing it around, going around the earth in 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, it's it's just incredible. I, I don't know how you see looking at the sunset for a satellite, but yes, I get what you mean. It's uh, it's incredible. Yeah, no, that would be incredible. Plenty of photo opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That's the that's the one. From oh, now sure. on, we go to satellites to take Instagram pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've also I've kind of like laid a little bit of groundwork on what I'd like to talk about next. And 
we talked about like gravitational influence and how satellites move really fast relative to just like us standing on the earth, just hanging out, doing our thing. I'm sure you're familiar, of course, because you've dealt with the data and stuff, but like satellites have to have time corrections, right? Because their clocks are different than our clocks on earth, like my watch. Yes. Do you remember when I was mentioning time that we were talking about levels data? So mm -hmm. we do have a process that makes the data time bind. So this means that you decide you say, okay, this was this exact moment. In fact, when you download data, you can easily have um, write in your code, I want to download the data from seven in the morning until eight in the evening. And that's something that you can do. Also, for example, a UMETSAT has two different times, publishing time and sensing time. So a sensing time is when you actually, it's the moment you sense the, the data. So you're saying, okay, after this volcano that erupted at this exact time, this was the data that the satellite took. And also you have publishing data. So the time that you actually get the satellites and you set and you put them available to people, you get the data and you put them available. Uh, so people that use, for example, UMESAT data, they can decide whether they want to publishing or sensing time. Uh, and of course you have that a bit for, for everything. Every time you use satellite data, you also consider that there are times, for example, one day you have really bad um, atmosphere. So you have a lot of clouds and you're using a sensor that doesn't go over clouds and it is taking picture of the actual place. So you end up not being able to utilize that data, that image that you collected because it's covered in clouds and you cannot make a good enough atmospheric correction to go over the clouds. This is what what happens. But I mean, again, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly how scientists that, that there is like a really long work around mm -hmm. the, adding what is the time and specify which time you're using. Oh, you know what's really cool? Um, that's also depending upon how, like what type of waves you're using from your satellite. Because you said if you have clouds, you might not be able to get signal through. And that's because, I mean, if you, if you know how a microwave works, um, mm -hmm. microwaves, microwaves, right, on the EM spectrum, they interact with water. And yeah. that's how you heat your food. So that makes sense. If you're using a satellite that uses microwaves, you're not going to be able to penetrate correctly through any sort of storm front. And you can combat that, if you could, with a satellite that has longer wave radiation, so radio waves and that sort. And then you could get through the clouds and, and you're chilling. Yes, exactly. It's really interesting because every sensor works really differently. Yeah. Um, what I, I, I have learned in my time is like main differentiation between what is an active and what is a passive sensor. So a passive sensor when you actually don't have your source of light. So satellites that, for example, the, the one I've used, uh, Olchi, and that you, you retrieve information about water, it's taking the light from the sun. This means it does not work, for example, when it's night. You cannot it, it take information at night with a passive sensor. Uh, but then you have active sensors uh, where you actually produce the light. Uh, so based on the light and the distance of the light, then you can take it. You can go over clouds clearly because you have a light. This is how we make topography maps, the majority for with LIDAR or SAR. We get to send the 
laser towards the earth and then just by calculating the distance that laser took to change its properties then you know the object is there i would say that the two main categories of satellites passive and active sensors oh well yeah, yeah it's uh, <laughs> yes it's uh, and, and as you say it really it really really depends on uh, on the sensor you're using and that's why there is so many different sensors and so many different ways to analyze and you also don't really get data just you know again another example is always the same uh, but when i study particles in the water i don't i don't take data about particles in the water i take data about backscattering coefficient right so how yeah. much does the light move and what is the concentration in the water of that so it's also understanding how to use those data and that's why we need so much science and so much research so people actually get the data and they start using them for their own researches and try to find algorithms to then use the data in a different way and it's really incredible how many things you can do that makes perfect sense i like that <laughs> I don't know if you if you know that, uh, but it's um, it's really interesting that through satellites they managed to discover the secret of the um, uh, Easter Island. Do you know Easter Island? Uh, yeah. Easter Island is yeah the, the one of the statues, and it was like the mystery that nobody knew how they moved these statues around. They were too big. And with satellites, they were able to find out the kind of movement of the soil, so the path that people would take. So they started, they created another Easter Island statue. I don't know why it's, it's called. <laughs> um, they created a Moai and they wrapped it around with ropes and they started moving it and to see if they could move it like that. And it, that movement would create the same pattern that they saw with satellites. So now we know that they actually moved the statues because they were able with ropes to move the statues all over the island and that's thanks to satellites it's crazy oh so they like they they must have like roped the top of them and like moved it like corner by corner kind of like um like edging edging it forward yes you know? they would make yeah. it like they define it as actual walking right so yeah. they pushed in a way that it would lose the balance on one side and on That's the so other and then just walk uh, from the other side it's it's really interesting you can do a lot of things that's really cool i want to jump back just really quick and explain the time corrections for yeah. the, the satellites because i think that's really cool it gives light to special and general relativity because it seems like almost magical mathematics, but it's extremely applicable mathematics. And satellites is a great example of that. So I'll, I'll just like briefly explain that like special relativity tells us that if something is moving relative to you or I at a faster speed, that something's internal clock should tick slower. So time will go by slower for it. We know this through the, the Hafel Keating experiment. It was where they had jetliners that went around the world and they measured the time of the clock on the plane relative to the clock that was on the ground. And they found that based on special relativity and in, in Einstein's predictions and Einstein's mathematics, that the experimental data and the mathematical data aligned perfectly within 10% of... Um, uncertainty, which is fantastic. That proves special relativity exists. And then general relativity 
tells us that if something is traveling relative to you or I, where the gravitational field is stronger, time will tick slower for that thing that is moving. So if we think about it in terms of satellites with respect to you and I on the surface of the Earth, the satellites with respect to us are farther away from the center of the Earth. So it experiences less gravitational pull. So their time, the satellite's time, ticks faster than ours does. And in most cases, they're moving faster than we are on the surface of the Earth. And that's depending, of course, on its uh, orbit and objective. So their time ticks slower than ours. Now, the cool thing is, is when you compare these effects of general and special relativity, especially for GPS satellites in like mid-Earth orbit, the gravity actually wins. The gravitational effect um, has more has more effect on time dilation, which is super, super cool. It's further away from us, of course, and its time is ticking faster. So that's how they have to correct. They have to either change the way that the satellite functions or they have to change the data or interpret the data with the understanding of special and general relativity, which is pretty cool. Wow. That's, that is super interesting. I, I didn't, I didn't know that. And you're, I'm learning so much. It's clear you're a physics, you studied physics, no? Yeah. Studied physics. I'm not a physicist. Studied physics. Yeah, Maybe someday. <laughs> Maybe someday. No, but, no. Um, <laughs> the really interesting thing is, and I, I took a blurb uh, from a study from Ohio State University, um, because I wanted to put a perspective on the math. A middle Earth orbit, mid-Earth orbit satellite should tick faster than the identical clocks on the ground by about 38 microseconds. So that's like 38 times 10 to the negative six seconds per day. Now you think that's, Sam, what the hell? That's super small. Why do we even care? <laughs> but the funny thing is, is like GPS is high precision and it requires actually nanosecond accuracy. So like 38 microseconds is 38,000 nanoseconds. So if you didn't properly take this into account, the navigational fix, you know, based on the GPS constellation would be false after just only two minutes. So like the errors in global positions would continue to accumulate at a rate of about 10 kilometers each day. So it would just be like, why do we even have it up there? It's completely worthless without the correction. So that's why Einstein's special and general relativity is, is super, super important for satellites. And if you didn't have it and we didn't understand it, we wouldn't be able to take the phone that we have in our pocket and go to grandma's house. We'd be screwed. Be over. <laughs> you know, Thanks. it's really interesting that you're also talking about GPS because then again, we go back to GPS is obviously a, a great tool. The GPS was a mission is actually, is actually American. There is right. a lot of similar global positioning systems that are applied in Europe, in Europe or in China. Uh, so there is a lot, but we always yeah. talk about GPS, right? So we're going back to the same conversation. Uh, but of yeah. course, who doesn't use uh, Google Maps? So. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, all the Apple Maps people are screaming right now. They're not happy yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I don't use Maps. It's, I have an iPhone, but I don't use Maps. It's so uncomfortable. <laughs>
don't worry. Uh, I'm the same way. Anyways, so I think um, we've exhausted this segment enough. And when we come back, we're going to explain or just, you know, kind of introduce some more things about satellite data. So stick around. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same Seabar for three months now, and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. Seabar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. All right, this is the last segment. Uh, this is <laughs> yeah. This has been a, a, an interesting trip, talking about a lot of really cool and applicable things. I guess in this segment, we're going to start out with some interesting applications of satellite data. So, Noemi, what do you got for me? Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting part of remote sensing because um, I have known so many people working with satellite data and they have done things completely different from what I have ever heard before. So as I was mentioning before, there is a quite a big application from archaeologists as the statues of the Easter Island, but also they discovered through satellites, for example, the um, older pyramids in Egypt. I don't know if you read about that, but the classic pyramids, the European pyramids, they are not the oldest. And a scientist, also a woman, she discovered the other pyramids through satellites data. Um, so this is a big, kind of a big part is also from, from archaeology. Then, for example, I heard other researchers they were studying how to uh, figure out where whales would have been stranding. And they were following the whales to satellite data and trying to understand how to save them. So as soon as they would discover that a certain whale, that, that a whale was stranding on a beach, uh, by following their path that they were doing throughout the time, they could save the whale. So it was a great application. They have also found many ways to study biodiversity. For example, this is one of the biggest studying biodiversity with um, satellites is a, is a great way that we have to analyze our planet. Um, or they they have studied as well, for example, the movement of dams. That was my old job, actually. I was studying with SAR, which is another uh, the synthetic aperture radar. Um, I was studying how dams would move. I don't know if you know, but dams, they are not fully staying stable all the time. Uh, it seems crazy because it's a dam and you're like, how is it not staying <laughs> stable? But it does move. And with uh, satellite data, we can understand millimetric changes from one spot to the other one. So we would study uh, dam failure with satellite data. Um, I also know that they've been, you know, many islands have been discovered through satellites. And actually there was this satellite called Landsat 
and it discovered a new island. And this island was called Landsat Island. You can Google it and find it. I mean, you know, people say that it's not really an island, it's more of a rock because it's true, it's more of a a rock more than an actual island but they gave it this name and uh, <laughs> and because it was discovered by satellites um but i feel that generally speaking satellites are used in so many different ways and it's a great way that we have to explore better and it's actually something that we really really need from um from people using satellite is is this is using them using the data after we have created you know, the satellites, we send them into space, we can make all these calculations, and now we have the data. What do we do with them? What's the best way we have to utilize this data? And I think that's the best part. There is so many ways and so many different properties that you can use to study satellites. And also like your background, for example, I feel that there is quite of misunderstanding of people that are able to enter this kind of business. Um, so people are often thinking, oh, you need to be an aerospace engineer or an engineer to, to enter this. Um, it's not really true. Uh, you can enter remote sensing and satellite data in a lot of different ways. And if you consider in my team, we have such different backgrounds. Like some of us are computer engineers. Sometimes some of us are geologists. I am an environmental scientist, hydrologist, actually. Um, and we have cloud engineers. And it's a lot of work that can be done from a lot of different sites. And generally, again, people are like, it's, it's rocket science, you know, it's not everything is rocket science, not everything in space in, is rocket science. You don't need to know everything to be able to uh, enter this subject. So I feel this is something really important for people to understand, to know that it doesn't matter what is your background, that if you are interested in this type of uh, business, you can certainly be able to enter it somehow. Like you said, it, the applications are endless. You can go from weather data collection. You can look at biodiversity. You can look at uh, luminosity and uh, population density. You can do so many different things. Um, yeah. You don't have to just be a data analyst. It's so funny because like, when you go into higher education on most of the sciences, probably all of the sciences, I'll just say, you're going to have some form of data application, some data analytics that you'll have to do and it just makes sense and the, the last thing i think that i think i want to say to what you were talking about is that yeah we need i i've probably said this so many times in, from different podcast episodes but different backgrounds result in different solutions and you need many different types of solutions to uh formulate a, a strong answer or stance Absolutely. on something so. Absolutely. The perspective of, of people, yeah. like the, it's uh, the diversity of the scientific community generally, I mean, in every community, um, but in the scientific community is really important because you get different perspectives. Uh, you get different ways of seeing and looking at a problem and different ways of solving the problem. So if we don't have, we don't have a community, we don't have collaboration, then what are we doing? We are just aiming to, to do nothing, to discover things for ourselves. But this is not the point of science. And I think that the more we grow as a society, as a community, and we 
more like trying to learn how to be a better community together and work together then we're doing progresses because if not it doesn't it just doesn't work being diverse is it's fundamental in the community so i'm, I'm really glad that you know i i'm in a really diverse team all my backgrounds has always been in really diverse groups and and it's great because you get to learn a lot I have recently heard this um, recording of a podcast. There was this girl, she was talking about how you shouldn't never be the smartest person in the room. That is so true because nobody's ever the smartest person in the room because it really depends on the type of people that you have. Everybody has a really different background, has learned really different things. And that's when you can actually reach to a common knowledge because you, you get different ideas that are based on different knowledge. If not, what would be the point of being a team, right? Oh, totally. Also, in terms of like coming to a conclusion in terms of a problem set, you have to think about the inclusion because if there isn't inclusivity, you're going to leave out like certain groups because data, you know, is applicable to everybody, whether it's climate data or luminosity data or just anything like that, because, you know, people exist everywhere in uh, different shapes and forms. So they have to be represented. If not, they're left out. And that's not progress. We, we need that more than, than anything. Uh, and we also need to, to, you know, put more effort for those communities that don't have the same access as a, a more developed community. But then we enter in, in more politics. <laughs> nope. Before we get into politics, um, I'm going to ask Noemi if she has anything else that she wants to say. If not, we're going to get out of here. Yes, I just want to say, please be uh, excited. <laughs> Do never doubt yourself if you want to study something, if you're interested in remote sensing. Uh, you can ask me or some anything you guys want. Um, and don't be scared because really there is so much to learn. There is so much to know. And people science needs you more than anything. It needs everybody. So that's my that's how I'm going to leave you. Beautiful. Noemi, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me, Sam. It was such a nice conversation. Absolutely. All right. Ciao. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. I just wanted to take a quick second and thank Noemi for taking the time to share her knowledge and expertise on satellites, data, and remote sensing. Definitely make sure that you check out her content on Instagram. You can find Noemi at nowoman.noscience. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make the show happen. This podcast was edited by Ariel Piermont, marketed by Courtney Page, QC'd by Panny Pitt Erickson, and our episode art was created by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out with the fight against the algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.